The sermon text today is from Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. When our kids were very small, Amy watched uh, some other kids too, maybe six or seven of them are running around. And with small kids, the goal is to teach them right? That's why God put big people with little people so that the big people could teach the little people. And so there's a stretch of time as our kids are young and these other kids are around that she was teaching them about strangers, uh, what to say, and especially what not to do, right? Do not take anything from a stranger. Do not go out of the yard if they ask you to come with them and with fire-breathing passion, right, coming out of her eyes, flames. Do not ever get in a car with them, right? Anybody been there as a parent? Okay, all right. This was understandable. Amy went to great pains to explain this wasn't only about strangers, but also somebody who wasn't a parent or a sibling, even if it's a friend and they come over and they say, hey, you know, I, she said, I don't care what they tell you. Even if they say they talk to your mom or they talk to your dad and it's okay to come with me, don't go with them. And these little kids would smile back and they would nod their heads and then they would ask when snack time was because that's what kids do, right? And so my wife, Amy said, up this little test. She set up a test partly to teach them about the possible dangers and partly just to scare the living daylights out of them. And she searched the country. What she needed was a shady looking character, a shifty looking kind of guy, preferably who had access to a van. You can picture what we're after here. After searching Bourbon County high and low, here's who she found. This is our children's minister, Paul. And I think I caught him at a dance there. He's trying to dance. So that's not working out so well for him. But uh, he also had access to a van, interestingly enough. It was a church van. And so Amy set Paul out in the church van to capture some kids. Paul wheels up, says, hey, I'm going to take you for ice cream. And these little kids, these surprisingly, they do very well. No, no, we can't go with you. We're not supposed to. Miss Amy said that we could never, no, uh uh-uh, we can't do that. We can't go with you. Then Paul said the magic words. This phrase somehow completely reversed their tiny little thoughts. He just said this. Oh, you don't understand. Amy said it was okay. All of a sudden, before he could open the doors, Paul has a van full of toddlers and preschoolers. They're jumping in through windows. They are set. They are ready to get some ice cream. And what they really got was a trip around the block to a waiting 
daycare lady who looked more like a prison warden at that point than a caregiver. She and Paul both, uh, after that little episode, lovingly, I'm sure, went through the drill of what they did and what could have happened and what they should have done and what they'll do the next time. I'm not sure they ever got ice cream. Here's what I, here's my, when it comes to your spiritual life, oh, oh, they did. Did they get ice cream? Thank you, Paul. I'm glad to know that little bit of extra information. I appreciate that. (laughs) When it comes to your spiritual life, here's the question. How do you know who the bad guy is? How do you know if Paul driving up in the van is the bad guy or not? How do you distinguish who's telling you the truth about Jesus and who's just wanting to take you on a van ride to take you down by the river somewhere? Who is really passing truth directly from God and who isn't? And that's what this book of Galatians is about. This scenario is exactly what the Galatian people are going through. Paul on his missionary journeys, had established churches. And on his very first missionary journey, you can read it in Acts chapter 13 and 14, he goes to Iconia and he goes to Lystra and he goes to Derby, and he teaches people in those areas about Jesus. And he laid the foundation for building churches in this area that's commonly known as Galatia. And then he moved on. The problem is, after he established all of these churches... Some people came in after Paul. Paul is gone, and now some people have come in. Paul calls them agitators. Some people just call them teachers. And they began to teach these new followers of Christ that, you know what? Paul was well-intended. He's a great guy. He gave you a good start with this Jesus guy, but he didn't teach you everything. And we're here now. So don't worry about it. We got this covered. We have the gospel the way it's really supposed to work. And the way it's really supposed to work is, yeah, you need that Jesus guy. But what you really need to do is you need to be a part of Abraham's family. And the only way to do that is to be circumcised and to obey the law with all of its regulations and and all of its ceremonies and all of its special days. In other words, if you want to be a part of God's family, a real part of God's family, you have to become Jewish, right? Put yourself in those shoes. How would you respond? Here's the problem you're being asked to pick. Is the Apostle Paul right? Did did he not tell us a few things? Are these teachers right? I'm sure that they were well-intentioned. I'm sure that they were good people. I'm sure that they were loving people. Who's right? The question is, there's no way you can make that choice correctly if you do not know the gospel. Part of what we learn in this book of Galatians is that it's possible to be involved in a church and to not know the gospel. It's possible to be involved in a church and to turn from the gospel. It's possible to be involved in a church and to forget the gospel. And that's exactly the case here. And it's why Paul writes this letter. Galatians is probably the earliest letter to the churches. Uh, It's one of the earliest letters of Paul that we possess, probably 49, 50 AD. And it's a really good thing that he wrote Galatians 
Because Christianity is at a crossroads here. Will Christianity be played out as Jesus intended it to be played out? Or will it be hijacked by people with other agendas? And the people in the Galatian churches need to be reminded of what the gospel is and also what it is not. And as you read through the book of Galatians on your own time, if you can just remember these two things, you, it will make a lot more sense to you. The book of Galatians is about, number one, Paul's authority. In other words, here's Paul saying, here's why I have the authority to tell you these things. And here's why you should listen to me. That's what the Galatian book is about, first of all. Secondly, is what he tells them. What the real gospel is. Here's the true gospel message. You should listen to me for all of these reasons. And here's what I'm saying. Here's the true gospel message. And it is this, Jesus plus nothing. Repeat that with me. Jesus plus nothing. That's the gospel one more time. Jesus plus nothing. And even in these opening verses that were just read, Paul's main thought is about the, what the real gospel is. He crams the whole gospel into this introduction. And so what is the message? What is this gospel? And there's one word that uh, it was in Cheryl's translation when she read it. It's rescue. If there's one thing that we could talk about what the gospel is, it's a rescue. The real gospel is about a rescue. And there are a few things as we begin to to discuss this rescue that become readily apparent. Number one is this rescue is incredibly unique. It's unique. Some of you are probably into books or online courses or maybe you're into TED Talks or you're into podcasts. Uh, because they help you with life, right? And it doesn't really matter what you're into. There's an overwhelmingly popular formula that is used. If you want that in your life, then do this. That's the formula. It's pretty easy. If you want that, then do this. I want prize-winning tomatoes in my garden. Great. You want that? Then do this. You need to build this and you need to follow this plan and do this procedure and buy these kind of seeds. And if you really want to make it easy, just buy my course, (laughs) buy my book. I want to keep bees and harvest my own honey. I want to keep them in my backyard without getting stung. You want that? Then do this. Get this. Get this kind of equipment. Dress like this so that bees don't sting you. Follow this. Do this. And if you want to make it easy, buy my course or buy my book, right? Do you want to grow your church? I want to grow the church. Then do this. Go get these kind of people. Follow this kind of plan. Put this kind of structure in place. And if you want to make it easy, buy my course. What are they really saying? Well, they're really saying buy my course. But first... The common thread in all of that self-help stuff is save yourself. That's the message. If this is what you want, then here's how to do it. Go and do it. It's all up to you. And the information that we're going to give you is going to bring about the transformation that it's going to take. And that system works. It's not necessarily a bad setup. You've been successful with that, right? You want something to, you want this in your life and they tell you take these steps and you do and you're successful. But it's not isolated to gardening or husbandry or leadership. Even religions take this kind of approach. 
Do you want salvation? Is that what you want? Then do this. Buddha and Confucius and Hinduism would say, meditate on it. Here's what you do. Just meditate on it. Muhammad would say, do you want salvation? Then do this. I have a bunch of different pillars and steps. And if you will just follow those, you will have right standing with God. Judaism says, do you want salvation? Do you want a right standing with God? Well, then here's what you need to do. You need to mark your body first so that God knows that you're serious. And then you only eat qualifying foods. And then you need to keep a long list of rules and regulations that we've made up for you so that you won't even come close to offending God because we don't want to offend God. And you see the formula, right? It's the same. Do you want that? Then do this. The thing in common is everybody is telling us that we can rescue ourselves. You can do it. You can rescue yourself. Now, the Jewish one here that I mentioned last is important because that's exactly what Paul is combating. That's what he's confronting. The agitators or the teachers have come in after he has left. And Paul says in his own words, they are perverting the gospel. They're twisting it. They're turning it inside out. And they are telling you that you have to be circumcised to prove that you're in God's club. The Galatians were told that they had to observe rules and days and ceremonies also that God would accept them so that they would have a right standing with God and their salvation would be found in following the law. Do you want salvation? Then do this. And in this book of Galatians, Paul's Paul is going to bring seven arguments against this idea of a do-it-yourself salvation. And we could ask this, why does he spend so much ink arguing against this idea? And the answer is simple, because it won't work. Rescuing ourselves won't work. It's not the same thing as growing great tomatoes in your garden. You can't just follow some steps. In this case, information does not equal transformation. It would be like this if you were out and there was a body of water somewhere and somebody was swimming and you noticed, hey, I think that person is drowning. What should I do? I think I will write a manual on how to swim really quickly and I will throw it to them. Have you ever heard of a hero story like that? No, but I've heard of many hero stories over and over of people that we honor and we applaud who were in the same situation. They saw somebody drowning, somebody struggling in water, and they themselves dove into the water. They risked their own life for the life of another. And that's the kind of rescue that saves. That's the kind of rescue that Jesus gives. Rescue brings change. It's not an information that brings change. It's a real rescue. Do you want this? Then do that. That's not the way Christianity works. Christianity works exactly the opposite. That's why it's unique. It says, I know what you need. I'm going to get it for you. I'm going to make sure you have it. Paul says it this way in verse four, that Jesus gave himself. Jesus didn't just come to give us information. Jesus didn't come just to teach us how to live. He came to rescue us because we are helpless and we are trapped in our sin. 
It's important that you understand why other religious systems say that, that there's a way to be saved if you just follow these steps and why people buy into that. It's the same reason that we sign up for courses and books and podcasts and TED Talks that tell us how to do something in our life. Why do we buy that? It's because they're appealing to our pride. They're appealing to our dreams. They're encouraging our dreams by simply saying, you can do it. And no one in this room doesn't want that to be true. We all want to say, I did it. We want to be able to say, I did it myself. I wanted this in my life and I went after it and I got it. That's what we want to say. The surprising reality about Christianity is that it never says that. Christianity is the only outlier in all of the religious landscape. Christianity never says you can do it. As a matter of fact, it says the opposite. It says don't even try because you'll never get there. On your own, you will never get to the place where you can stand before God with a right standing. You'll never get there. And so God sends himself. God jumps into the water. God sends Jesus. And Jesus is not primarily a teacher or an instructor or a motivator or a counselor. He is all of those things. But he is primarily a rescuer. He is someone that throws himself down into the hole that we're in and rescues us when we can't rescue ourselves. He is the one who dies in our place and rescues us. And it's a unique rescue. It's the opposite of everything that we would expect. Second, this rescue is not just unique, but it's also on behalf of our sins. Um, Verse 4 says, he rescued us for our sins. We could translate that on behalf of our sins. And there's an intrinsic connection between our sins and what Jesus did on the cross. Christ's death was above all a sacrifice for sin. We could say it this way, that Christ's death was a payment on our behalf for a debt that we owed to God because we are sinners. If you read commentaries, they might say it this way. The death of Jesus Christ was primarily neither a display of love nor an example of heroism. It's both of those things, right? But not primarily. Primarily, it's a sacrifice for sin. And those of you who have been reading through your uh, daily Bible, Um, you've probably gotten past the point now where in the Old Testament you understand that when people sinned, God said, bring me a sacrifice. For the forgiveness of those sins, I need a sacrifice. And what Jesus does once and for all is he takes care of the sin that we have in our life by offering a once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf. And that great truth Paul explains in this book later on in verse uh, 13 of chapter 3. He says, Christ became a curse for us. He bore in his righteous person the cure for what our problem was. He took our curse. He took our judgment upon upon himself. Our sins deserved payment They required payment, and Jesus died on behalf of them. But more importantly, he is your substitute, right? He offered his life when my life should have been offered. And it wasn't because I sought him out. It wasn't because I dress up on Sunday. It wasn't because I come and sit in the right pew on a Sunday morning. It wasn't because I memorize scripture. It's not because I tithe. What does verse 4 say? 
Why does God go to this rescue? Because it's his will, the will of God. And there's one word for that. It's called grace, grace. And so here's where we are. The only reason God would come after us in a rescue effort of some kind is his grace. It's not because we've chased after him. It's not because we've earned it. It's not because we deserve it. And look further. What is missing in this little opening text that Paul gives us? What's our role to play in this? It's absent. Paul never mentions any actions on our part to contribute to this right standing with God. The only thing that is done is done by Jesus. He's the one who gives himself. There's no mention of anything that we can contribute because we can't, and that's the point. It's not because of some resolve that we've made. I can do it. No. It's to trust the one who has already done all that needs to be done. If I were to give you a good test of whether or not you're listening to Paul or whether or not you're listening to the teachers, are we listening to the real gospel or are we listening to Jesus plus some other things? Here's a question you can ask yourself. When you fail, when you sin, and we all do that, right? When that happens in your life, what do you do immediately after? Do you pop up after you sin and say, oh, God, I'm sorry, I'm going to do better next time. This, uh, this is the last time, God, I promise. Next time, I'm going to do better. Or, when you sin, do you pop up in front of God and say, I'm sorry, God, I need Jesus. I need Jesus in my life. I need to reaffirm my trust in Him instead of in my actions that will surely be better next time. It's number two, if you're wondering, that is the gospel. Leaning on him, not on me. And so this gospel is, this rescue is unique. This rescue is on behalf of sin. And this rescue is from something. That's what Paul tells us. It's from the present evil age. What does that mean? The present evil age. And it's, it seems to be not something that we're in. I mean, we're kind of in it, but Paul tells us that we've just been rescued from it. So we're kind of in it, but we're not in it. What does that mean, this present evil age that we've been delivered from? And one easy answer, uh, when that phrase pops into your mind, this, this side of the issue probably popped into your mind too. One easy answer is just rebellion from God. What is this present evil age? It's deeds of darkness. It's a list of sins that we could make that is a mile long. And it's somebody shaking their fist at God and saying, I'm going to live the way I want to, God. That's rebellion, right? And surely that's a part of this present evil age. But there's another side. And it's what Paul will spend the majority of Galatians arguing against. This present evil age just isn't just about rebellion. It's also about self-righteousness. It's also about a resolve on our part to do better. The resolve that boils up inside of us. And that can be just as destructive as flat-out rebellion. When we start trusting in our repulsion of evil deeds or our abstinence from evil things, and we start trusting our own goodness, and we start 
accumulating all the right things that we've done and we get them in a big pile, all of the list of our spiritual accomplishments, and then we put them on the counter. And God's on the other side, right? We, we put all of our spiritual good, goodness on the counter and we say, there you go, God. Accept me now. Here's payment for the sinner that I've been. What Paul writes in Galatians is that act is just as evil and dark and vile as any outward act we could imagine. And here's the problem. You don't believe that. I don't believe that. In, in, our, in, in our heart of hearts, we don't believe that. Instinctively, a flag just went up in your brain and, they, in, and it said this. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're saying that the good things I do can be bad? That the acts of the right things that I do for God can be the very things that separate me from him? That, that can't be right. There's not that. What? And I want to welcome all of us to the book of Galatians. That very thing is the heart of the message of Galatians. Galatians isn't Paul railing against vile acts of evil rebellion. Galatians is Paul railing against self-righteousness and a resolve in our eyes to be right in God's eyes through our own efforts. And it's not because righteousness is a bad thing to attain to. Absolutely, it's a good thing to to attain to. But self-righteousness, the kind of righteousness that always points back to me and what I've done, Paul will write in this book, is a horrible savior. In fact, it's useless to you. This book of Galatians is a message that's not so much for the prodigals who have gone off to the far land and spent all of their money in wild living. This book of Galatians is for the elder sons, the elder daughters, who have spent their whole life doing the right thing, but who refuse to get themselves into the party. And that's probably all of us. Elder sons, elder daughters. Self-righteousness is as much a part of the kingdom of darkness as blatant rebellion. It just takes a different form. Rebellion says, I don't need you, God. I'm going to live the way I want. But our resolve to do better says this. I don't need you, God, because I've already lived the way you want me to live. I already read my Bible. I already go to church. I already don't get drunk. I'm already righteous, and I don't need your righteousness. That's dangerous. Hmm. There's a short story written by Flannery O'Connor, and uh, it's called Wise Blood. And she describes one character in that little short story. And she just uses a line that if you're just reading it, it doesn't make much sense. But if you put it in the context of what we've just been talking about, it makes perfect sense. She says this about this character. Deep down inside, he knew that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Deep down inside, he knew the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. You see, as bad as falling into sin may be, perhaps the greater tragedy is successfully triumphing over a few sins and having some success with a few sins and then believing that your newfound success, your newfound goodness in living 
is what will save you, is what will make you right in God's eyes. And the danger, if you buy into that way of thinking, is that there's no longer any need for Jesus. Deep down inside, he knew that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And Paul will say of that, it's twisted, it's perverted. That's where the Galatians were, relying on their obedience to the law to save them because they're listening to these teachers who are saying, you need to become your own savior, you need to do it yourself, and there's no need for Jesus. Paul's message, that's not only a sick inside-out gospel, but it puts you right back in the hole that Jesus has just climbed into to rescue you out of. The thing about this book of Galatians is the tone that Paul writes with. It is harsh. It's angry. Can I just take you on a little tour? Verse 6, he says to these people, I am astonished at you. Verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, let them be accursed. He says it again in the very next verse, let them be accursed. Do you know what that translates into in 2017? Let them be damned to hell. That's, that's what it means. That's anger. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? We could translate that this way. Oh, you dear idiots, you've been tricked. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Maybe what I'm doing is not worth it for you. You are severed from Christ, he says in chapter 5. I am perplexed about you in chapter 4. You've fallen away from grace in chapter 5. Now, if you've ever read any of Paul's letters, that's not the normal way that he starts out his letter. That's not the normal way he writes. What does he write? Does he challenge people on some things? Yes. But he starts out very nice, very polite, very thankful, very loving. Oh, I'm so thankful that you're partners in the gospel. You are my joy. And he writes with love and understanding and compassion and as though they are friends. Not that way here. Not for the Galatians. Paul is angry. Have any of you ever been angry at something that happened and fired off a letter? <laughs> Just fire off a letter, right? That's what Paul's doing. He's firing off a letter. Because this stuff is too important. This is life. This is death. This is a parent. Seeing that the only way to keep his child alive is to violently shove him out of the way of the car that's coming down the street. This is a daycare provider putting kids through a test so that when the real danger comes, they can avoid it. This is Paul, who is a spiritual father to these people that he brought to Christ and with fire in his eyes and flames shooting out of his eye sockets, he is desperately trying to save his children in the faith from the wolves that are now attacking them. And in his passion, in his fire, in his angry tone, what does he tell them? What does he tell them? Does he say, fix yourself, get it together, do the right thing, straighten up? Nope. He doesn't say any of that. He says, run to Jesus. Trust in the rescue of Jesus. The true gospel is a rescue. 
If we are relying on ourselves, then it's not the gospel. It's twisted. It's perverted. It's slavery. It leads to destruction and it leads to death. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Say that with me. Jesus plus nothing. One more time. Jesus plus nothing. And that leads to life and it leads to freedom. A man fell in a hole. He fell in a hole and he couldn't get out. A traveler passed by. He told the man to meditate, to purify his mind. And when he reached Nirvana, all suffering would cease. The man did as he was told, but he remained in the hole. Another man appeared. He explained that the hole didn't exist, and neither, in fact, did the man. It was all an illusion. The man who did not exist was still stuck in the hole that was not there. Another visitor arrived. He instructed the man to perform good deeds to improve his karma, and though he would still die in the hole, he might be reincarnated as something magnificent. Another man looked down from above. He taught the man to pray five times a day facing east and to follow five important tenets. If he was faithful, one day, perhaps, the divine would set him free. The man prayed as best he could, but he was losing strength, and in the hole he remained. something different about him. He called down to the man in the hole and asked him if he wanted to be free. This man lowered himself into the earth, into the pit. He took hold of the man. dragged him into the light. And the man in the hole, who could not get himself out, was saved. What saves you today? Is it something that you've done? Or is it Jesus? Have you let Jesus come down into that hole and lift you out? Here's the gospel. The gospel is I am more sinful and flawed than I could ever dare believe. But because I'm in Christ, I'm more accepted and loved than I could ever dare hope. That is it. We are sinful people, but because of a righteous Savior, we have been rescued. And that's the invitation we invite you to, that kind of rescue. 
And I need to put this in context because the minute we say you don't have to do anything, it seems like the very next breath we say, come and do something. (laughs) Come and confess. Come and repent. Come and be baptized. And I need you to understand that there's a difference between what qualifies us. Jesus is the only one that qualifies us to stand in front of God in a right standing. Qualification is different than participation. I have to choose. Even in the video, do you want to be saved? Yeah. Okay. That's all it is. Would you choose that today? Would you choose to say in faith, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Would you choose in faith to say, I need to live my life in a different way? Would you choose in faith to say, I will meet you, God, in the waters of baptism so that I can receive all of these things that you're offering me, forgiveness and life? Maybe that's your decision today. Would you stand? We're going to sing. And if you have that choice to make today, Don't leave until it's made.